Hi, everybody. I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic, and I'm coming up to one year being off the road and doing these webinars. This is number 177. I had no idea we were going to be doing this many, but it's really great, and I really enjoy all the wonderful guests that I've had. Tonight is Dr. Maureen Kelleher, and she's at the Marion DuPont. Uh, what's the rest of the name? Marion DuPont? Scott. Marion DuPont Scott, UConn Medical Center. Thanks. Yeah. I just, I, I mouthful. it's just the abbreviation. Yeah. Um, which is a rehab center in Leesburg, Virginia. So welcome, Maureen. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I am happy to be here. Thank you, Wendy. So Maureen, um, can you just give us a little bit of your background uh, for the, for my guests? Yeah. So um, I uh, came to, I, Marion DuPont Scott is in uh, Leesburg, Virginia. <clears throat> and uh, I came here about uh, three and a half years ago from California. Um, most of my veterinary education and um, experiences have been uh, in California. I went to vet school at UC Davis and um, did an internship at Pioneer Equine, which um, does a lot of uh, performance horse work, a lot of Western performance horse work, but some English performance horses. And uh, that's where I sort of got my uh, sport sports horse, sport medicine bug, um, and then went and worked for a practice that did predominantly English uh, performance horses, a lot of show horse, um, show work. So working at the shows and that kind of thing um, and definitely had uh, lots of soft tissue and bone injuries to rehab in some of these higher end horses. Um, and then I went and did a surgical residency back at UC Davis and, um, and then went and went right back after my residency to managing um, performance horses. And so that's really been my focus. Um, it is uh, performance horse injuries, rehabilitation, um, imaging, di diagnostic imaging, that kind of stuff. Do you so, see a big difference in injuries for uh, like dressage horses and Western competition horses? Um, not really, but what I will say is I think that the, um, susceptibility comes from a different aspect. So if you look at some of the quarter horses um, and how their body types are and how their breeding has come along through the years, um, they're a big stocky horse with little tiny feet. And so there's definitely a genetic component um, with some of them ha having some predisposition to navicular issues. Um, so I think while the actual injury type uh, looks the same on diagnostic imaging. Um, I think that where they come from, it differs a bit. So the quarter horses um, may have some genetic predisposition that tips them over the edge to injury. Whereas um, some of the uh, dressage horses or um, even jumpers uh, may not come so much from breeding or they're their breed predisposition, but uh, just their 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 individual confirmation and in their job. Yeah. Um, and of course, I have to ask: um, Were you a horse crazy kid? Kid and rode as a kid. Yep. So definitely um, had little briars when I was uh, little, little, and then started riding. I think when I was about eight or ten, um, and then got my first 
official my own horse when I was 12. So yeah, I've been a horse owner, a uh, horse lover since, since I can ever remember. Awesome. And so vet school was just on your radar the whole time? Uh, yeah, I actually um, did a lot of riding. I didn't go to college right away after um, high school and uh, mostly rode horses, um, did a little bit of work training horses, um, uh, and then finally decided I needed to get my act together and do something else with my life because uh, training doesn't always pay the bills as much uh, as, as you'd like it to. So, um, but I was happy. I, I I think that may be one of the reasons why I landed in the sport horse performance, horse medicine, um, aspect of things. And, and what brought you to Virginia? I mean, it's a quite a different climate than California. <laughs> yes. So, um, if any of you are uh, show show horse people or horse show people, um, you know that you can be on the road traveling a bit, going from show to show to show. Um, and I had been doing that for many years and was getting a little uh, uh, tired of traveling um, from show to show. And so started looking for different opportunities. And a friend of mine um, that I did my residency with is an internist here at Marion DuPont Scott. And she sort of encouraged me to apply for a new position that they were posting, which happened to be sports medicine. So oh. I think there was uh, somebody uh, up there looking out for me. <laughs> oh, nice. So that's a fairly recent addition to Marion DuPont Scott. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that facility? It's been around for a long time, but I'm not sure everybody uh, knows about it. Yeah. So it has been around for um, probably about 30 years now. It's in Northern Virginia and does serve um, Virginia, uh, Maryland, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. So um, we do get horses from all over, even all the way from North Carolina. Um, we are a satellite hospital of the veterinary hospital uh, that's based out of um, Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. So the main vet school and the main vet hospital is in Blacksburg, which is in Southern Virginia, uh, Southeastern or Southwestern Virginia, excuse me. Um, and this, um, Marion DuPont Scott was basically, um, we were granted the land, um, Morven Park is surrounding us. And so the land was donated um, for the hospital and then Marion DuPont Scott donated the money to start the hospital. Um, so we are an educational institution being part of the vet school. So um, we also um, have residents, we have students that come and rotate through our hospital. Um, and then uh, all of the faculty members do have some teaching and research positions as well, or uh, uh, commitments. Um, and we see everything, basically. We have board certified um, internists, board certified uh, surgeons, uh, board certified sports medicine and rehab specialists. Um, we have many uh, imaging modalities. Uh, so from MRI to uh, CT scans to x-ray, ultrasound, uh, uh, all kinds of endoscopy. So upper airway endoscopy, gastroscopy, we can do laparoscopy. Um, we've got two surgical suites. And so we do a lot of emergency work as well as elective surgeries. So lots of colics, um, lacerations. 
um, all kinds of things there. So, um, so we have a pretty broad spectrum of imaging, diagnostics, and, and therapeutic options. And then with my addition, we've been building our rehab um, services. So we have quite a few rehabilitation uh, services available now as well. Um, besides the surefoot pads, we have um, laser therapy, uh, we have shockwave therapy, we have vibration floor th uh, therapy. Um, I do chiropractic and acupuncture as well. Um, I'm trying to think what else. We have a, a cold compression, warm compression machine as well. Um, it sounds and, like you've got all the bells and whistles. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> so we do some post-surgical rehab and then just um, regular old non-surgical tendon, ligament, joint, bone um, rehab as well. And just approximately how many horses a year do you see for sports medicine related? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, that is a very good question. I know the hospital sees on average about 2,500 to 3,000 patients a year. Um, so I would say, uh, you know, the sports medicine, I think our emergency uh, caseload is probably pretty high and accounts for a good proportion of those. But I would say probably, I mean, I myself personally probably say anywhere from two to five appointments a day. So, you know, probably a fair, a fair number of, you know, in the hundreds um, of cases a year, for sure. Wow. And so sports medicine in the United States is something that's, um, it seems to me that it's, it's a newer concept that to treat horses more like athletes, to do physical therapy, to, to be proactive and, and catch it before it's a serious injury. Um, you know, I know when I, when I go to Europe, it's particularly Germany, um, equine physical therapists is what they're, or animal physical therapists over there yeah. is, is a well-known profession. And I know I have uh, quite a few people actually as part of the Surefoot team that are animal physical therapists that use Surefoot in their practice. Whereas in this country, it seems like it's, we're just beginning to really wrap our brains around this idea that we, we need yeah. to be doing physical therapy with these horses because they are athletes. We need to yes. treat them that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I do think other parts of the world are a titch ahead of us as far as um, at least the, the, the idea that physiotherapy in animals um, and that really comes down to mostly um, equine and canine um, because those are the athletic animals out there. Not to say that um, you won't go into a small animal rehab facility and see a cat on occasion. I've seen cats in, in uh, water treadmills, believe it or not. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you guys ever want to watch anything fun, just go to YouTube and look for cats in water treadmills. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the canine, I think really what sort of got things, um, fired up in the U S was not actually equine, which is a little surprising because we do have, um, a, quite a huge horse industry in this country and we have, um, you know, a, a good selection of, um, every caliber of horse available from really upper echelon, very expensive horses to um, not very expensive, but very well loved horses in people's backyard. Um, 
but I think it was the canine, um, you know, the agility dogs and the flyball dogs and the, and the military and military and, um, police working dogs that really led the way in this country. I think, um, a lot of those dogs, especially the working dogs are a, a significant investment, uh, for, you know, the, the police and the military. And so they started to, I mean, those military working dogs, um, that they are soldiers and they have, you know, for lack of a better term, they have dog tags and they have military IDs. And so I, I, my impression is that they started seeing these as valuable resources that you would treat the same way as any of your other human valuable resources in rehabilitation. So, um, and then I think as it caught up, it caught on in canine, um, uh, the canine world, it, a lot of equine people went, well, wait a second, we can do that with horses too. Um, I do think the area that, that the equine world has um, pushed the um, envelope is with regenerative medicine. So biologic treatments in the form of um, stem cells or um, PRP or any of the biologic um, products for treating joints and tendons and ligaments. And so I, I do think, um, you know, that that is where the equine world kind of pushed it. Um, and now I think there's a really nice crossover where canine people can um, get a lot out of the equine world and the equine world can get a lot out of the canine uh, research as well. That's awesome. And um, yeah, and I think, you know, we have such a huge investment in these horses that um, to not think of them as athletes that need the same kind of care as any, even if it's a like a trail horse, it's still athletic. It's carrying a rider, you yeah. know, up and downhill, especially around here, rocky surfaces, down through rivers, um, you know, it, and it's, it, you know, an injury is really expensive. So preventative care obviously is, is always the place to, to be not at your place. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, I think also a lot of people say, well, if I go out and twist my ankle and go see the doctor, they're going to send me to the physical therapist until I feel better. And why shouldn't, you know, if my horse goes and twists his foot, you know, why shouldn't I do the same thing for, for him, especially if I want him or her to come back and do the same job that I was asking him to do before he hurt himself. So, um, um, you know, so I think, you know, horse owners today expect a lot of their horses and, and in return, they give them back a lot, you know, try to take care of them quite well, prevent injuries. Uh, but then if they do get injured, they, they take very good care of them and, and get them back on their feet. Which is yeah. Great. And, and more and more that the general awareness of, of rehabilitation and, and cross training and fitness, it's really, we're, we're really starting to figure this thing out, which is great. So uh, one more question before we get into your talk. Um, do people bring their horses to Marion DuPont Scott for, physical rehab, or do you have people that actually go out to the horses? Is it, um, which way is they, it? Right now they come here. Um, we don't have any um, uh, ambulatory service, so to speak. Um, I hope someday that we will, um, my dream someday would be to do 
um, basically a little bit of telemedicine with some other vets um, and consult, see what resources are available to the area and then um, help people come up with a good rehab plan. The other thing is um, we have several of our technicians and nursing staff that are very good um, and have training in rehabilitation. And so um, as we grow and the rehab part of our practice grows, um, it would be, I would love to have a opportunity to send them out into our area um, because I think it's also very beneficial for the horses to, to have some of these things right where they are um, instead of having to haul them here all the time. Um, they can stay here. So we, I do have a, again, definitely horses that may come in for arthroscopic surgery or tendon surgery or joint surgery, they'll stay um, instead of going home, you know, after the surgery for, you know, if the normal horse goes home in two days, maybe they'll stay a week or two weeks afterwards and we'll do some of the initial post-operative um, rehab and then they'll, then they'll go home to get picked up um, by either their regular vet or maybe go to a, a proper rehab center. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that there's a lot of growth in the equine rehabilitation section of our industry. And I do think that, um, you know, there are a few, um, there's actually a few people in our area who are certified um, tech, tech like therapists, um, that do a lot of, uh, farm calls. I definitely recommend several, uh, different people in our, in our locale, Maryland, um, has a couple of nice, um, people that go out to the farm and have different modalities available to them, which I think is really good. Yeah. Because I know there's the CERP and the CERT training. Um, mm-hmm. is that something that, um, uh, Virginia Tech would ever, are they ever going to consider doing something like that? I don't know. I would love that. Um, University of Tennessee has a, yeah. like a top-notch um, program um, and they definitely got people coming from all over the world to take that program. Um, the techs that we have um, that have an interest in rehab have done that program. Um, it's a very in-depth program. program. Um, I think down the line, as we build build our our rehab practice, uh, my goal, my hope would be to to set up something where we could train people as well. We are a university, and one of our our missions is to educate. So that would be would be awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Great. All right. So let's uh, dive into your topic here. I'm just going to make sure that um, all set. Okay. Um, I can go ahead. Let me share. Uh, yep. You should be able to screen share. Okay. So I only have a couple of slides and um, and certainly um, I can just do a brief overview and then we can um, do questions and that kind of thing. The, the biggest thing I wanted to chat about today is um, deep digital flexor tendon injuries in the foot. So um, if any of you know the anatomy of the limb very well, um, they do have 
the horse does have a deep digital flexor tendon on both front and hind legs. Um, and it starts pretty high up and it starts as a muscle. It is a tendon. So it starts as a muscle. And then, um, as it comes down, it changes from muscle tissue to tendinous tissue, which is very, uh, firm fiber, more fibrous, fibrous tissue. Um, and it comes all the way down the back of the leg to insert on the bottom of the coffin bone. So starts in the front leg, starts all the way up, um, by the elbow and in the hind leg, um, up above the hock. So it's a very long, um, musculotendinous, uh, structure. Can you just use your pointer to, oh, to sure. trace it down on the, yeah, cause yeah. I can your pointer. So, there we go. Awesome. <laughs> this guy right here is our deep digital flexor tendon down in our foot. And so here's, um, our, our coffin bone on the half shell and our navicular bone and our short pastern, long pastern bone and the end of our cannon bone. And you can see this arrow um, pointing upward is, um, you know, this, this guy doesn't stop here just because the picture stops. Um, it, it goes all the way up, but um, you can see it's uh, kind of glistening white tissue, um, very uh, long linear fibers that um, come all the way down. Now, um, there are some other soft tissues in the back of the, the pastern um, that come down into the foot. Um, but the main one that I want to kind of focus on is the steep digital flexor tendon, because this area is um, a focus of injuries for the deep digital flexor tendon. So while it can get uh, injured anywhere along its length, I would say probably the most common location uh, when you hear about a deep digital flexor tendon injury is going to be down um, in the in the foot area, so within the hoof capsule, and then even if we were to say from about the level of the pastern joint lower, um, if we were to break that up into the section that was um, most prone to injury, it's going to be right here in the navicular area. And if you kind of look at it, it makes sense. Um, obviously this specimen is no longer alive. And so it's not bearing weight on its foot. Um, so this does have a gentle curve around the navicular bone. But if you think about um, the horse that might be standing on this foot, you can, it, it, you could see that the a lot of weight is going to come down um, and compress along this uh, deep digital flexor tendon. And then uh, it's got this curved area, which it has to surpass. So depending on the horse's foot conformation, we could have more or less stressors in this area. Um, and certainly we've heard lots of horror stories about the navicular bone itself and how um, prone to injury this guy can be. And so because of their close association, we tend to um, put the complex of navicular syndrome or navicular disease um, to mean anything that happens in this area, meaning injury to the bone, injury, this little space here, I'll show you in the uh, other picture 
um, is the navicular bursa and our deep digital flexor tendon. And then there's a few other uh, soft tissues that kind of hold the navicular bone in place. So if we go to this blown up picture, here's our deep digital flexor tendon um, curving along the back of the navicular bone. And then this space where the bluer arrows are, that's our navicular bursa which is uh, a synovial structure. So very similar to a joint. So it's um, surrounded by soft tissue and within that uh, space is synovial fluid. So um, a thick, well, ideally a thick viscous fluid that helps this deep digital flexor tendon glide along the back of this, the navicular bone. So when the horse is um, moving, um, it's, it's helping to, uh, prevent this from getting stuck, uh, to stuck over the navicular bone. We want a nice smooth gliding service uh, surface so the horse can, uh, bear weight, spring off the ground and move, uh, pro propel itself forward. You know, it's looking at these pictures and listening to you, suddenly you realize the entire horse 1500 pounds, say my horse, is dependent on that tendon crossing that navicular bone. Yes, absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. All of a sudden it's frightening. It's yes. such a tiny little space. <laughs> yes. And, and you can understand why then when somebody um, comes in and has an MRI and finds out that their horse has a deep digital flexor tendon injury down here in this area, um, it, it's a pretty serious, uh, you know, it's pretty serious news. And, and, and that's sort of, um, what I want to talk about a little bit today is because, you know, um, I do a lot of MRI imaging and there's a wide gradation of these injuries. And so there are times when I say, Hey, you know, don't, let's not panic. Um, and there are other times when I say, okay, this is not good. Um, and, and yes, um, not only does all of the, the weight and the force of the horse's limb come transmit down and, and be basically pushed against um, this, this small area, um, which then has to spring back um, and you know, help propel this horse forward, um, you know, if we have poor foot conformation, so um, either uh, in, inherent in the animal, meaning it was born with poor conformation um, or due to poor trimming and shoeing um, or poor hoof care, um, it, a lot of those factors also go into play into how much stress and strain gets put on the, this area um, of the foot. So, um, one of the things that we do when we diagnose a horse with a deep digital flexor tendon injury is get the foot in better balance. So number one treatment is gonna be to make sure that foot um, doesn't have any undue stress on it and the deep digital flexor tendon doesn't have any undue stress. So if the horse um, has a very broken back um, angle, we're going to need to lift that up a little bit to get some of the stress off that uh, deep digital flexor tendon, um, and vice and vice versa. If if somehow the leg is becoming very contracted um, and uh, the horse is very club footed, um, the the deep digital flexor tendon is becoming uh, 
tighter, um, which in itself can be painful. And so gradually we want to do some work on the foot to lower that heel over time to see if we can get a little stretch um, on the on the deep digital flexor tendon so that it becomes more elastic and less uh, rigid. Is, is MRI pretty much the only way you're going to see these types of injuries? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with some fairly tedious, I think, um, preparation, you can do a limited view of the the foot um, with ultrasound. So certainly we can take radiographs, um, which will give us a good look at all the bony structures, but not give us any information on the soft tissues. As far as ultrasound goes, which, you know, anywhere else in the body, ultrasound is my absolute 100% favorite um, imaging modality. You can nearly look at just about anything with an ultrasound. But because of the rigidity of the hoof capsule, the uh, echoes or the ultrasound waves can't really penetrate the hoof capsule unless the hoof has been soaked in water. Um, and then you still only have a very limited window and only really kind of see the surfaces of things. So if you really need to find out what's going on in the foot, your best bet um, really is to do an MRI. And I know a lot of people say, well, but they can do an MRI or they can do an ultrasound for three or $400. And I say, okay, but if they don't get a diagnosis or um, don't get the correct diagnosis because the imaging is difficult, then the, then you've, wasted that three or $400 that you could have used to get the imaging that's gonna give you the absolute answers that you need. Um, most, you know, there's multiple uh, places to get MRIs done in this country. Um, there's probably one within two hours of every horse in this, in this country. Um, and there's different types of MRI. You'll hear discussions about low field, high field, low field MRI is just means that they can be done standing. Um, you know, there's, there was a stigma, uh, for quite some time that the low field MRIs were not diagnostic or not diagnostic enough. Um, and I don't think that's the case anymore. I actually prefer, uh, all of my foot MRIs to be done with the low field, um, and standing, um, very, very rarely would, do we come up with a non-diagnosis? Um, and I think that the, there's a good percentage of those that uh, we may get a non-diagnosis with a low field that we probably would get a non-diagnosis with a high field as well. Um, you know, it's just, just something physiologic that we have yet to come up with the, the form of diagnostic that's going to be most beneficial for every injury, um, especially bone injuries. So um, uh, well, I, can I just ask the, the MRI that you have that I've seen, is that yep. a low field? That is low field. Yep. Okay. And then is there uh, an importance to having the foot under load? In other words, the horse standing when you do that? Um, yes and no. So I do think that is beneficial in some cases, but then in others, um, because it is under load. So if you take, for example, um, 
even the deep digital flexor tendon, um, if you've got a very fine split um, and it's under load, then those fibers are going to be squished together, so yeah. to speak, versus if they're non uh, weight bearing, then there might be a gap where you could see that. Now, down in the foot, I think that's much less likely um, to occur as it would up in the fetlock area where um, it's more common for that for horses to get um, linear splits. Um, and then we ultrasound them in a weight bearing stance. And it's very hard for us to see those linear splits um, in the weight in a weight bearing stance. But it's also very common and very easy for us to, when we're ultrasounding, to pick up the leg and get a dynamic ultrasound so that um, we can get some of that relaxation of the deep digital flexor tendon up in the fetlock and be able to see some of the linear splits there. Um, there's not been a means to, to do a non-weight bearing um, uh, MRI in the sedated horse, we can use that same ultrasound or excuse me, uh, MRI machinery to do, um, general anesthesia MRIs. So as, um, if I'm MRIing something up the leg, um, depending on the horse, um, we will do standing fetlock MRI as well. But once we sort of get past the fetlock, or if we've got a horse that's either very painful or not very patient, um, I usually recommend that even the fetlock um, be done under general anesthesia because of the motion that can happen. So down in the foot, they're very stable um, and the foot hardly moves at all. And so there's not a lot of motion artifact. We get very nice images, but even in the most statuesque course, as they, uh, as we propagate up the leg, um, there's micro motion that affects the images. So while I could say, yeah, sure, we can uh, do a standing MRI of the proximal suspensory, um, even if the horse is being 100% perfect and it doesn't even look perceivably like they're moving, there will be motion artifact. So when I really uh, want to get good images of somewhere up in the higher up in the, uh, higher up in the leg, then I usually will put them under general anesthesia to get the, the most out of my imaging. Um, but uh, yes, uh, the, the one we have is low fields. And even again, with that under general anesthesia, we get beautiful pictures and it's very, very rare that we get a non-diagnosis. What's sort of the average cost of MRI for the front feet? Yeah, so um, we have a package at um, EMC, which basically um, the horse comes in and has all the prep done, which we have to take the shoes off. We have to take x-rays to make sure there's no little metal fragments from the horseshoes in their foot. Um, we put a little catheter in, they're sedated. Sometimes if they're uncomfortable, we block their feet so they're more comfortable. Um, and our, our general price um, for one foot is uh, $1,750. So yeah, it's a, it's an investment. And if we do both feet, I think it's $2,750. So um, the, second, the second foot is $1,000 more, not, not double. 
Um, and I think that's probably pretty average across the the country. So, so for some, for um, a horse to wind up needing to have an MRI, I would assume that they've already had a workup. Somebody's already looked at them. They've tried some other things. The horse yep. is still lame. Yep. And so you've kind of gone through your process before you get to this point. Yes. Yes. Um, I, you know, really depends a little bit on the owner and the horse. There's very rarely um, times where the first, very first time I see the horse, and unless it's already had a little bit of workup done by another vet or, um, or the vet's very suspicious that the horse might need an MRI, it's very rare for me to see a horse for the first time um, localize the lameness to the foot and then say, let's do an MRI. Um, I'll, I'll go a little bit more traditional route, which is take x-rays. Um, a lot of times, um, there's definitely some trimming and shoeing changes that could definitely benefit the horse. Um, so I'll do some, uh, treatment that wise, uh, maybe make some exercise recommendations, et cetera, before I jump to MRI. Now there are a subset of people who say, I want to know everything right now about my horse. And I'd rather know that there's not that much wrong and it's okay to just do those changes and, and go on. Um, and so sure, if somebody wants to get an MRI for a horse that has a foot lameness, I'm not going to say no, but I also, am not going to expect somebody to spend $1,750 or $2,750 the first time they come see me just, um, to get them, you know, to, to do an MRI. Um, there are plenty of foot lamenesses that need, you know, a little bit of shoeing treatment, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and, and they'll be fine. Um, so I don't think you have to do an MRI, but if you've got a lameness that's either severe and can't be diagnosed, um, or that has continued despite all of your interventions, then the only way you're really going to get an answer about what's going on in that foot is, um, to do an MRI. And, and I have had lots of cases come in where the horse has been x-rayed upside down and this way and that way, and they can't find anything wrong. And I will find a fracture and everybody oh, wow. will say, well, how come I didn't see that fracture on the radiographs? Well, there are three, you know, the foot is a three-dimensional um, item. And, and the only way you're ever going to see a fracture on a radiograph is when you shoot your x-ray beam directly down the line of that fracture. So if you don't get it just right, you, you may never see that fracture um, until you do an MRI and get all the different um, views and planes um, of that foot region. So, um, and, and that's part of the thing too, with, with even with really good preparation, um, ultrasound of the deep digital flexor tendon is not gonna give us all of the answers about that tendon um, there, there's lots of, uh, intricacies that we can see with the MRI that we can't see with the ultrasound. So um, basically then, you know, a horse presents with a foot lameness, you do a standard workup, take some x-rays, uh, 
look at the trim, improve the trim, maybe try some pain relieving medication, see if that improves the horse. And then you kind of go, okay, this horse isn't improving. We need to get a better picture. Let's do an MRI. Is that kind of the process? Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And then, um, afterwards, um, you know, for, for me, um, I've been reading, looking at MRIs probably for about 15 years now. So I would say in about 98% of cases, I can look at the MRI and I know what's going on, um, and can come up with a treatment plan fairly quickly. Regardless, I send all of my MRIs to a radiologist for review. Um, I might miss something. I'm not a, I'm not a radiologist. I am a, a surgeon sports medicine person. Um, and so I always like for the, the radiologist to take a look at it as well. Um, confirm number one, that I see what I'm seeing, um, and to make sure that I don't miss anything, um, subtle or, uh, not obvious or something like that. Um, and then usually, um, I come up with, a, a treatment plan of various degrees. So, um, when somebody comes to see me and if there's anybody out there who has come see me, seen me, I give people sometimes maybe too many options, but I, I break it down into, um, conservative middle of the road and aggressive treatment options. And so that gives everybody the chance, you know, especially, you know, just doing the MRI, um, might have blown your entire budget. And then, you know, you, now that you know what it is, that's probably the best thing we, the most important thing we needed. So if you didn't have enough money saved to do really, um, compre- you know, you know, high-end uh, treatments, that's okay, because there's a lot of things you can do that don't cost you anything but time. Um, so certainly controlled exercise um, is free as far, as long as, you know, that's, that's a uh, time uh, and your time and the horse's time. Um, and then, you know, there's definitely some uh, physical therapy or rehabilitation things that can be done that again, are relatively cost-effective. Um, there are some medications, you know, non anti-inflammatory medications, um, you know, definitely they can have some side effects, but a short course, um, can definitely decrease the inflammation, make the horse feel better. Um, most of the time you always are having a farrier come out to work on your horse's feet so we can get a proper shoe on a proper trim. So I work with a lot of farriers in our area, um, with different cases, just to make sure that um, we're all on the same page. Um, you know, I, I, I understand from the farrier's point of view that not every thing, every shoe option is available for every horse um, just because of of quality and confirmation and that kind of thing. So um, I try to work really hard with the farriers um, based on the horse's foot quality, what's wrong with the horse, um, what kind of rehab they're going to do and uh, what, what the barriers, capabilities, and, and preferences are so that we can get that horse into a a nice balanced shoe. That's going to be supportive of, of, uh, the injury and rehab. Um, so, um, I definitely think that there's definitely, you know, lots of options, um, afterwards from very conservative treatment to, um, injections, 
um, and then even surgical surgical interventions at some points. Yeah. Wow. All right. So um, I, I'm not quite sure how to phrase this question, but um, <laughs> given the number of horses that you've looked at with MRI for foot DDFT injuries, what percentage of those horses have a balanced foot? <laughs> I would say um, a small percentage, honestly, uh, or the injury was present before the attempt at balancing the foot happened. So for example, horse comes up lame, the vet goes out, localizes it to foot, take some x-rays says the horse's foot is off balance. Let's work on the shoeing. Let's do that. Um, and they give that a go for two, three, four shoeing cycles. The horse doesn't get better comes in. In those cases, the horse, there's been an attempt made to get the horse, um, balanced, but at the time of injury, was the horse balanced? Probably not. So I would say there's a, in my mind, there's a big correlation between, um, the, the amount of, uh, balance in the foot um, and a deep digital flexor tendon injury. Now that said, um, there are some horses that despite everybody's best effort, their hoof conformation is less than perfect. And so it could be trimmed and shod as perfectly as that horse is possible to be trimmed and shod and it still could get an injury and it's not the owner's fault. It's not the farrier's fault. Um, it's just the horse's, uh, confirmation. And then beyond that, you know, they are athletes, um, uh, all doing different jobs and certainly soft tissue injuries, um, can happen acutely. So some of these injuries are chronic, re chronic, repetitive, trauma to the deep digital flexor tendon. Um, but some of them are, you know, an acute misstep or a slip in the mud or a crash into a fence or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, it could have the most perfect confirmation, most perfectly balanced foot, um, but have an acute traumatic injury to the deep digital flexor tendon. But I do think that almost every horse, uh, I see, with an MRI, with, with a deep digital flexor tendon injury has some room to uh, improve in the foot balance department. Yeah. So. Um, so do you ever find that there's also a nutritional component to these injuries or is it pretty much a structural mechanical? Um, good question. I guess I don't think we have enough information there. Um, I think Nutrition is also one of those subjects that has always been sort of there in the background um, in the equine industry and is now starting to be um, investigated and um, incorporated into the whole management plan of the horse um, a little bit more than it used to be. Um, I think, you know, 20 years ago or even, you know, we let the feed companies decide what to feed our horses. Um, and now we're, we're realizing that there's probably a little bit more to the nutritional balance. Um, you know, uh, certainly they can have, uh, be over nutritioned, um, and have poor mineral balances. Um, even if they're getting lots of food, um, they can also be, um, undernutritioned because they're not getting enough groceries. 
um, or they're not getting the right kind of groceries and certainly hoof quality um, is reflected in their diet. Um, so certainly th there's the, there's every part of the horse is connected to every other part of the horse. So, you know, I can't say with certainty that there isn't something to it. Um, but I don't know if there's ever been a direct, direct one-on-one -on -one to one link. Right. What, what percentage of the, um, uh, injuries that you see are acute versus chronic? Um, I would say, um, for the deep digital flexor tendon, it's probably about an 80, 20 split, about 80% of them are chronic repetitive and about 20% of them are an acute injury. Um, again, just because of how the horses, you know, the, the body type, the foot, the, what it does for a living, how it's balanced, et cetera. Yeah. Um, they start as, um, I would say the most common history that I get is, well, he was lame two years ago and then he got better and then he became lame again, but then he got better and he got lame again, but he got better. So, you know, this cyclical, um, sort of lameness where, um, he does, he, the horse comes up lame, we rest him, he gets better. We put him back to work, does well for a little while, hurts himself again, same foot, um, rested, gets better. And so what happens is they get a small little injury to their deep digital flexor tendon. We rest them. They feel better. We work them. It recurs, gets worse. Um, so each sec, uh, subsequent time we're getting healing of that injury or re-injury, um, and making more scar tissue that is less than ideal. And the more, um, scar tissue and, um, re-injury there is the shorter the interval before it's going to get injured again. Yeah. Um, and then it gets to a critical mass where they can't keep the horse sound for more than, you know, maybe a month or something before it goes on sound again. And, and, and then they come in and by that time, there's a lot less that I can do to help them out. So, um, you know, if it doesn't respond well, the first time it became lame, um, then that's, that's when I usually, uh, recommend the MRI, um, not the second or third or fourth time, um, because by that time, you know, we've already accumulated, uh, some damage. The, the first time honestly just takes a bit more rechecks. Um, so if your horse is lame, um, blocks localized to the foot, um, gets some shoeing redone, <clears throat> maybe some uh, steroids or something. Um, I usually, uh, recommend rechecking those horses a couple of times, um, within a three month period. And if at any point during that period, the, the lameness recurs, then, then we need to, we, we need to find out what soft tissue is involved because, um, or if there's a bad bone bruise or if there's a bad joint injury, because those are the things we need to stop on and really rest and really rehab. Um, if the horse has a little foot lameness, get some shoeing and trimming um, intervention and the vet comes back in a month and it looks good and it comes back in a month and it's, and it's back to um, more intense exercise and it's still good, then we're probably good. But if it comes back in a month and it's sound and we increase the exercise intensity 
And then in a month later, it's lame again in that two month interval, it's not handling the amount of exercise it needs. It may be subtle, but the lameness has returned. So those are the horses that I, I think probably need to get an MRI sooner rather than later, because there's a lot, if there is a deep digital flexor tendon injury, the prognosis is much better the earlier we, we catch it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just like a person, you injure a tenant, then you just keep injuring that same foot over and over because it's like the weak foot. And if you don't rest yeah. enough to get it healed, um, we yes. have a question. Um, do you okay. find horses with short or long pasterns tend to see more caudal hoof issues? Um, Dr. James Rooney in his book, The Lame Horse, which is from 1974. And he was one of my uh, advisors for my master's degree. Um, so I'm sure we have learned a lot since then. Um, he says that short upright pasterns tend to exacerbate pressure on the navicular bone, but wouldn't long pasterns cause more strain on the soft tissue up the back of the distal limb? Yeah. So that's a super question. Um, and, and if you think about it, um, especially if you just look at this picture here, right? We've got two pastern bones, our short pastern bone and our long pastern bone. And really what defines what our eye decides is the pastern is this space right here, right? Not really our pastern bones. Um, and then what defines this space right here, a lot of times is the horse's overall limb conformation. So what kind of hoof do they have? What kind, do they have a proper heel? Are they long toe? low heel or they have um, more of a club foot. Um, and then what is their conformation up higher? So a horse that, uh, for example, um, has um, quite in a, a long toe, low heel, um, and there's not a lot of support to their fetlock area. So if you look at them from the side and you draw a straight line down from the, the back of the pastern, there's absolutely nothing below them, right? We don't see, you know, there's no heel, there's no shoe, there's no nothing. Those horses are going to have um, a little bit tougher time than a horse that is a little bit more um, upright. And so I think it really comes down to um, what the horse's overall conformation is. Um, there's definitely long pastern horses, short pastern horses. And I think it's, uh, it, it really doesn't have that, that much to do with the size of the pastern bones. Um, but really how the leg is put together, that gives us sort of this um, impression of how much space we have, um, in the back of the leg. So I do think, um, I don't want to put uh, any of our predecessors down because they were working with the best information they had and in, in the best technology they had at the time. And we definitely have, you know, since 1976 or whatever, in that 40 something years, um, we have, I mean, we have MRI, we have CT, we have digital radiographs now. Um, we have a whole lot more science that, um, that they didn't have available to them. Um, so I do think that, that it is a confirmation thing, um, but I don't, I don't know necessarily if the, the short versus long um, is necessarily true anymore, just based on what we know now. Great. All right. So once you have 
come up with a diagnosis, <laughs> then yeah. we get the treatment, right? Yep. Yep. So again, a lot of people um, get scared um, when they hear their horse has a deep digital flexor tendon injury. And, and I definitely think that any soft tissue injury in the horse is something that um, needs to be cared for very carefully uh, so that they get the proper time to heal. Um, and I think that's still something that's up in the air uh, that we're still trying to figure out how long that, that really is. Um, they can show no signs of lameness, but that doesn't mean that the structure hasn't healed completely. Um, so certainly with any soft tissue structure, there's going to be a rest period. And I say rest very lightly. Um, all of these horses, unless there's uh, like a near catastrophic rupture to the structure, um, I like these horses to be moving to some degree. Um, because this is a very elastic tissue and it needs to stay elastic. Um, and so they do need to be walking at the very least. Um, I don't put them in a stall and leave them there. Number one, it's not good for their brain. Um, and number two, it's not good that the, when there is pain in a horse, um, especially in a, in the foot, um, they are going to bear wet bear less weight on that structure. And over time, so because of the length of this deep digital flexor tendon, if they're bearing less weight on this structure, it's going to become contracted and shorter, and then it's going to be much harder for them to stretch, stretch it out and, and have it be elastic. And it's going to be very painful for them to go through, um, the process of, stretching that out. So if anybody's ever, um, had to wear a cast, um, and then they take the cast off and all of your tendons are just screaming because they've become contracted and haven't been used properly while you were in that cast. And it was, uh, it was painful for you to go through the process of stretching all those structures out. And that wasn't even the structure that was injured. That was a byproduct of wearing the cast because you broke your arm or you broke your leg or whatever. So um, I do like for these horses to be moving to some degree. Nice footing. Um, if you live in an area where there's, it's not too rocky or it's relatively, you know, if you're not living uh, on the side of uh, the mountain mm -hmm. uh, on a shale mm -hmm. cliff, then, you know, take them out for a walk in the field, go for a trail walk, um, let their brains not be um, cooped up. You know, horses are very interactive and they don't like to be rested any more than we like for them to be rested. So um, I try to encourage people to do lots of different things. It's a great time to brush up on your groundwork. And when I stop, you stop. When I turn left, you turn left. Um, and that kind of stuff, um, walking over poles, um, really to engage their proprioceptive uh, mechanisms, know where their feet are. Um, all of that stuff can be done. You can do a lot of back exercises, a lot of back rehab so that they don't lose their top line while they're, while they're just walking or only walking. Um, shoeing, I mentioned um, also, there are lots of things we can do as far as biologic medicine or regenerative medicine. So injection of platelet-rich plasma or stem cells or other serum products. Um, 
definitely you can treat um, the navicular bursa with um, corticosteroids as well. It's not usually my first choice. I usually would rather put a biologic agent in there, um, but it, it, it does get the inflammation out of there, which is what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and then um, rehab. So um, certainly I like to um, do a couple of things here. Temperature is always um, a very beneficial and again, very cost-effective sort of rehab modality. So on the one hand, we wanna decrease inflammation. So after a walk, I'm gonna ice and get that foot nice and cool and cold. And then after that, I'm gonna apply warmth or keep the leg wrapped or keep the foot um, warm in some way um, with a boot or something like that because the increasing the temperature of the soft tissues will help them maintain their elasticity. So switching between warm and cold um, is always um, good, especially in the, in the um, uh, short term, um, right after the injury diagnosis or injury has occurred. Um, and there's lots of other things. Um, you can do some laser therapy, you can do some shockwave therapy, um, all kinds of um, different rehab. Um, probably what's most relevant to today. Um, let me forward through my presentation here. Yeah, while you're doing that, uh, the person who asked the question about Dr. Rooney, she, she just wanted to correct her statement that Dr. Rooney said the, I'm not sure I can pronounce this word, uh, entheos fights and enthesiophytes. Thank you. Yeah, on yeah. the lateral and medial side of the navicular bone is seen in very upright pastures. Um, that could be. So enthesiophytes are basically um, bone bony changes at the site of where tendons and ligaments attach. So on the corners of the navicular bone, so actually I've got this picture up. This is um, um, a cut through the foot. So we have um, our coffin bone, our navicular bone, and here's our deep digital flexor tendon um, right through here. And then this little space in between the flexor tendon and the navicular bone is where the, the bursa would be. Um, and um, so there's soft tissues um, on either side here of the navicular bone that um, help attach it to um, the coffin bone, um, as well as to the collateral cartilages um, to kind of lock that uh, navicular bone in place. And so um, definitely um, the enthesiophytes can occur um, on these edges here um, at these soft tissue attachments. Um, I think that that's possible um, for the enthesiophytes to sort of um, occur at the at areas of most stress on the sides here. Um, I think that would also be possibly due to a medial to lateral Im imbalance of the foot. So um, if the foot is not balanced from inside to outside, then you're gonna get more tugging on some of these soft tissues on the sides of the navicular bone as well. Um, this is an MRI image. I was just um, kind of showing uh, the three, the three um, main structures there. Um, and if you look at this uh, 
this deep digital flexor tendon on this particular view or scan, um, the deep digital flexor tendon is predominantly a black or dark structure. Um, if we go forward, um, here is, um, so this is our cut through, that's how we're looking through it um, to get this view. And again, this is a little bit above the navicular bone, which is right here, um, but this is our deep digital flexor tendon and you can see all of these white gnarly um, scar tissue-y um, changes to this deep digital flexor tendon that's there. Um, but let me move on to this picture. So, um, and this is um, an example of some of uh, what I have some of my deep digital flexor tendon horses do. It's not usually um, right away. So especially in an acute injury, I want things to stabilize and quiet down a little bit, get rid of some of the inflammation, maybe do some of my other modalities. And around the two to three month mark is when I start to employ the, the use of the wedged um, surefoot pad. Um, and again, I'm gonna start with the firmer ones and then move on to the softer ones. Um, and this horse's foot is on the pad um, a little bit further than I would start. So I would probably start with just maybe the toe on the edge of the pad. And then over time, um, work, work the foot forward um, up the wedged part. And so this may seem a little bit backwards, but what we are trying to do is um, stretch out that deep digital flexor tendon. So again, it's running down the back of the leg and coming across around the navicular bone and attaching on the bottom of P3. And I know I just said that a you know long, long toe, low heel horse puts a lot of pressure on their deep digital flexor tendon. So why would I want to um, increase that angulation by lifting the toe? Um, and my answer to that is that I'm not doing this permanently. I'm doing this for maybe 30 seconds, um, three repetitions, 30 seconds three days a week to start with, and then gradually um, improving from that uh, or increasing from that. And the idea here is that all of these tendon and ligament structures, when they um, heal, they heal with scar tissue. Every, everything that gets injured in the body heals with scar tissue. And so the normal deep digital flexor tendon is composed of collagen type one, which is very long and linear and elastic. And it heals with collagen type three, which is like a um, ball of yarn that has been rolled around and played with by a cat for an hour and is a big wad of fibers everywhere. And so what we're trying to do is get some, um, during that early stage of healing, give it a little bit of um, a, a stretch to it to kind of encourage the healing of those fibers to be longer and linear and more elastic rather than jumbled up like a, a ball of yarn. So um, while I typically will put a 
um, if I've got a long toe, low heel horse with a deep digital flexor tendon, I'll often put those horses in a wedge, a wedge pad so that their heel gets elevated a bit. Um, I'm using this pad as a rehab tool to get some stretch. So if you think about if you're a runner and you need to stretch out the back of your calf before you go running, what do you do? You walk over to the sidewalk and you put your um, heel down on the ground and your foot up on the curb and you stretch the back of your leg out so that you can um, get that, get the back of your leg nice and uh, loosened up and more elastic before you go running. And so that's the same idea here is I want this to get stretched out gradually and slowly without putting a lot of stress and strain on it. But I do want the, the foot to, to take on some of that, um, stretch and, and, uh, and this seems to work super, super well. Um, the horse obviously likes to stand on it. It's easier. Um, you're not forcing them onto some little tiny little block thing. Um, and you can work your way up. So again, we're starting very, um, minimally. And then over time, as the horse is tolerating it and healing, quite nicely, we might get even more of a stretch, um, out of them. And they may actually at some point say, Hey, this feels really good. I'm going to inch my way up to be comfortable and put my foot where I want and really, um, get a, a stretch there. And they may actually, um, push the limits as what well, as of time as well. So, you know, if I start with 30 seconds, um, and then they took the, take their foot off themselves and lick and chew Then I'm like, okay, well, that was, that was the, a good amount of time. But if I, if they seem comfortable and they're standing there and they're dozing off, maybe I let them stretch it out for a little bit longer, as long as they're quiet and comfortable and then take them off. So every horse is going to be different. And again, the, the degree of the injury is also going to, um, dictate, um, how often they do this and, and how much they do this. So if it's a very bad injury, I'm going to do, um, I'm going to wait a little bit longer, um, but I'm going to do, uh, more frequent, but, um, shorter bouts of it versus maybe a horse that doesn't have quite as bad of an injury. Um, I might start sooner and do longer stretches, um, um, less frequently in order to, um, uh, get, get what I need accomplished. What, what's the average time? I know that they can all be very different, but the average time for healing, uh, this type of injury. So, um, every horse is different, but, um, I will say that any injury that's within the, the, um, deep digital, uh, in the, um, associated with the navicular bursa takes a little bit longer. Um, those uh, structure, the deep digital flexor tendon, when it's within the, the navicular bursa is surrounded by that uh, synovial fluid, which slows down healing. So uh, I usually say, even for a mild injury in, in the bursa area is, a, I, I say at least six months. Um, for a more significant injury, moderate to severe injury in that area, um, I would say anywhere from um, nine to 12 months at the minimum. But I have had horses that I have 
had to go slow enough that bef- bef- they were not walk trot cantering for 18 months after the original injury for a pretty significant um, deep digital flexor tendon injury. And then there are, there are a good, there are a subset that, um, I usually, if it's a pretty severe injury, I will tell people that, um, we may get them back to some level of soundness, but their level of expectation for exercise intensity, um, you know, might be very mild work. Um, you know, they may only be able to, be sound, um, walking, you know, if you start increasing their exercise intensity to start doing trot work and it, it, and the deep digital flexor tendon just cannot take on, um, that concussion, that stretch, um, especially associated with the navicular bursa, it's just going to create inflammation and inflammation is going to create pain. And then you're back to square one, even if you haven't re-injured the tendon, um, it, the tendon can't handle that level of work. So, so uh, we really do want to avoid these kinds of injuries. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. What's, what's the number one recommendation to avoid this type of injury? My number one recommendation is to get x-rays of your horse's feet balance x-rays. So a lateral projection and a dorsal palmar projection of your horse's front feet at least once a year to make sure that the feet are staying balanced. And coming out on Thursday to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think if you, I honestly think that as part of your yearly preventative medicine, you vaccinate your horse, you deworm your horse, you get a Coggins on your horse your vets there, have them shoot some x-rays, mostly of the front feet, um, have them shoot some x-rays and then have them share those with the farrier. And, you know, some years, if some years, if everything looks good, then great, you know, you're on the right track, but even the most skilled, uh, farrier, you know, over time, the hoof growth changes and they don't have x-ray vision. They can't see where that P3 is. Um, and I think most farriers, um, would relish seeing x-rays, uh, once a, once, once a year or more of your horse's feet to know that they're doing a good job. Um, and if, and, and if they do need to change something, they can change it. Um, you know, it reflects on the quality of their work and, and, um, I think most would love to see x-rays. So, you know, uh, if you want to do something very simple to help prevent injury, then that is my number one. And, and that prevents a lot of injuries in the foot that the foot is 90% of our, our lamenesses. And, um, you can see the balance, you can see, uh, you know, how much sole depth you have, you can see the angulation, you can see a lot, um, from those, uh, x-rays and you can do a lot of intervention with your farrier. So, so say the two views again, Yep. So basically it's a lateral view, which means the x-ray camera is going to um, be on the side of the horse. So basically this, uh, this is a lateral view. So it would be shooting across from uh, outside to inside. And then the second would be a dorsal palmar, which is basically shooting from front to back. So a side view and a front to back view. Got it. Yep. Um- Somebody's asking if this type of injury is mostly seen in the front feet or do you also see it in the hind? 
it is mostly seen in the front feet. Um, uh, you know, the horse does, a well, it should be doing most of its work from the hind end to the front end, but uh, they end up uh, bearing more weight on their, their front end. Uh, just naturally, even standing, they bear more weight on their front. Um, and I, I think uh, for whatever reason, the front foot balance is what gets out of whack a lot easier um, than the back. I do see a fair number of these in hind feet, um, but I think those tend to be the more acute injuries for some reason. Um, and we definitely see more of this in the front. I would say it's probably a good, again, 80, 20 split of, uh, of all of our deep digital flexor tendon injuries. I would say 80% of them are front feet. Um, maybe even higher than that are front feet. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's, I have to say, it's really great to hear you talk about these annual uh, x-rays of the feet, because that's something that, you know, we ha hasn't really been in sort of the common thought, but um, having done so many of these webinars, so many of my farriers have recommended that you get, mm -hmm. you know, radiographs of the feet so that everybody knows where things are. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, like you say, we don't have uh, x-ray vision. And I personally am trimming the, my two, my horses, the two I take care of and the one I own. Um, so that's three and they all have such different feet. I've got a Clyde thoroughbred cross. I've got a Welsh cob and a laminitic Connemar thoroughbred cross. And so, mm -hmm. um, I, I said just the other day, you know, I want the vet to come out and take these radiographs so that I can see how I'm doing and where I can go. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if you as a horse owner give your farrier a, a Christmas gift every year or a Christmas bonus every year, um, instead don't give him that dozen of eggs or that a Starbucks card or whatever it is that you give him, uh, or her or her, him or her, um, and you, if you tell them, I'm going to get x-rays of my horse's feet every year, they'll probably, that will be a great gift to them. Um, like, I mean, this is a professional who's invested in horse's feet. They absolutely want to see what's in there. Um, they want to see that they're doing a good job or if they need to change anything. And so, um, Absolutely. I would say, you know, if you want to be your farrier's best friend, um, start doing x-rays once a year. And I do think over time, I think, you know, again, technology changes our lives and, um, you know, 15 years ago, people didn't have digital x-ray on their, the vets didn't have digital x-ray all the time. You know, they had to do, they might've had computed radiography where they still, um, had to take them on plates, um, and then go develop them. Now, you know, in two seconds, you see, is that a good shot? Yep. Good. Let's keep it. Let's go around and take another x-ray. I mean, to take four x-rays of the front feet, two of each front foot, you know, it's going to take longer for them to turn the computer on and start it up than it is for them to shoot the x-rays. And then they're going to get back to their office at the end of the night and it's going to take them 30 seconds to send those in an email to you or to your farrier or to you and then you send them to your farrier and then both you and the farrier have digital copies of those x-rays um, and if you save those images over time you can see 
the changes that are being made in a positive direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was at AAP in 2019 and I think we counted like 40 different booths devoted to radio. Yep. Absolutely. Amazing. The technology that they have now. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Let's see. I, wait, I've got a, I think I have a question here. My trail riding horse is 24 years old, retired saddlebred, nine years on the track. Uh, multiple suspensory injuries and possible crack in pelvis. It's the only history I have. Have you done a webinar covering suspensory ligament injuries? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I haven't. Maybe we have to have Dr. Kelleher come back and do suspensory in yeah. ligament injuries. Yeah. Would you do that? I would be happy to do that. Yes. All right. Great. My second uh, favorite subject. Oh, awesome. Great. I'll have Alex get in touch with your book a date in April because, um, you know, that's, uh, it's just really helpful to talk about these things and, and, um, you've been marvelous and so grateful for you sharing your information with us tonight. It's been really informative and, um, you know, it, it's so interesting to to hear it from your perspective, but to know that there's some simple things we can do to yeah. keep us away from you. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. No problem. I would love to be obsolete someday. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we'll get that, that hooked up. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me tonight. And this has just been fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. And we'll see you back in about a month. Okay. Um, thanks, Wendy. Yeah. yeah. And thanks everybody for joining us and have yeah. a great night. Happy Monday. Thank you. Yeah, great Monday. Thanks. Bye. Bye.